This morning, I want to move back into the book of Acts. We're going to be picking up halfway through chapter 11 today and thinking particularly about partnerships, about how the the kingdom of God advances, not just through one place or one group of people, but, but strategically links together people and communities. We need that in order for mission to happen. So, yeah, you can turn to Acts 11.19. If I asked you uh, to reflect on or tell me about the legacy of Oliver Hardy, my guess is that most of us would sort of scratch our heads. We would be stumped. Or if I said, tell me about why Stan Laurel is significant in, in American history, you would probably also, most of us, be uh, unsure. But... Either name in isolation doesn't ring any bells for most of us. But if you you put those two names together, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, you get Laurel and Hardy, which is one of probably the most significant comedic duos in in cinema history, at least, in the past hundred years or so. And I recognize that their films are less contemporary Today, less contemporary certainly to my own generation than, say, my grandparents or my great-grandparents. But uh, I think about two years ago, there was a a biopic, a a film that was released through Hollywood called Stan and Ollie, which does a a fascinating job retelling the story of their friendship, uh, their partnership on the screen. And if you, if you take the time to watch the film, you discover that, that both of them had nominally successful film careers independent of one another for, for, for many years. And then in the 1920s, they were paired together in a film, and, and that, that film and, and their partnership on stage resulted in an immediate sort of rise in fame. And their fame came from uh, the kind of slapstick comedy that played up the differences between these two individuals. One was was tall and heavy. The other was shorter and and more slight, more slender. One was a a freewheeling American. The other was a a much more serious, sort of stern Brit. And and again, these these differences contributed to, to what made that partnership special. Those differences also played significantly into their personal lives and their friendship offstage. The, the film, uh, Stan and Ollie, focuses on that dimension and how, even through some pretty difficult stretches uh, over, over the, the years, they managed to, to keep and, and depend on one another uh, over, over a span of, of 40 years, really till the end of their lives, managed to, to create this incredible fascinating partnership with each other. I think that film tells well the story of how two very different people needed one another, how they depended on one another to to move forward in life. So often we're used to telling history as the story of, of individual accomplishments or individual places or one particular idea and how it plays out. But as we move through the history of the earliest church in Acts today, I think we come to a passage that requires us to focus on the necessity, the essential nature of partnerships. As the Holy Spirit initiates mission, as mission moves out further into new places, 
It encounters new people, new cultures, new problems. And it's then especially that these partnerships become critical for the, for the gospel to continue to, to grow and, and to take root. As we turn together to Acts 11 today, I want to pray that this passage of scripture would help us to consider. For the, the church in Jericho, you know, maybe we're used to thinking about our, our church as, as this, this place in its isolation or, or this set of relationships in isolation. But how might we need, how might we depend upon a network, a, a whole host of other partnerships in the kingdom of God in order for us to, to continue our mission, to, to, to make the, the connection and the, and the reach of our ministry more diverse? So as we think about what that might look like for us here, I want to, uh, to pray for us this morning. Lord, as we have read and continue to read in the account of Acts, your church is, is meant to be dynamic. It's meant to continue to push us past the borders uh, that are familiar to us. It's meant to encounter all women and men of every culture, of every place, of every walk of life, and, and encounter them with the living hope of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we might hear how that might be possible for us in this place today. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of us this morning, all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight. Amen. We're picking up in verse 19, and I recognize that this marks the middle of a chapter. But verse 19 marks off a, a sort of change of scenery. It, it focuses on a transition away from what was happening in Jerusalem, in, in the sort of heart of the established church. And it looks to things that are happening further afield, uh, beyond, now well beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So we get a, a kind of migration being described here of the church's mission. The church, it says, is, is scattered. It, it moves out from Jerusalem. But what's behind that movement, we're told, initially at least, is a wave of persecution. It's a wave of difficulty that drives the, the believing community out further. And the, the book of Acts doesn't shy away from the, the hardships caused by that persecution, right? If we think about what we've heard so far, if we think about what comes later in Acts, Acts records for us things like the, the arrests of God's people. We read about Saul and his persecution of the early Christians. We read about riots that, that violently come against uh, people proclaiming the name of Jesus. We read about the jailings of the apostles and evangelists. We even read the account of, of martyrs like Stephen and others. But even that, though that, that 
persecution brings difficulty on the one hand. Luke also wants to highlight for us what happens on the other hand, so to speak. He describes what happens as a result of the Lord's hand in verse 21. That through this scattering, through this persecution, these, these new and exciting frontiers of mission also begin to open up. And it happens, we're told, as Jewish Christians leave Jerusalem, they leave Palestine, they go to places like Cyprus and Antioch and Phoenicia. And then some of these Jewish Christians show up in what are predominantly Gentile communities. And these Gentiles begin to notice a, a new group of people, people proclaiming a new message, and they start to ask questions. Beyond that, they not only are asking questions about this good news of Jesus, but they show up in these worshiping communities to, to pray and to gather with the believers there. In verse 21, Luke says, Then a great number of these Greek-speaking Gentiles believe and turn to the Lord. Which means now that the church is becoming more diverse. Which is, is an exciting new development in the book of Acts. But it also presents the believers with a new challenge. As the church draws in new cultures, new people, new ways of, of thinking about things and viewing things... How does it support that increasing diversity in mission? What does it do to, to accommodate and, and to address and to contextualize the gospel for this new group of Gentiles? As I said at the beginning of the message just a few minutes ago, I think God's strategy to, to bless and to support this new wave of mission is pretty simple. He opens up strategic partnerships for the young church to, to help come alongside this, this new opportunity for mission. And I want to highlight three of those partnerships that I see described in the remainder of chapter 11 today. And in each case, I would ask us to think about, as, as we see how the early church entered into these partnerships, how might JCC, how might the, the church in Jericho glean uh, what it looks like, what we need, what, what kind of dependencies we need on others for the gospel to go outside our walls, to extend our reach into new places. Look, for, look with me at verse uh, 22 through 24. This is one partnership. It's the partnership of Jerusalem connecting with and supporting the church in Antioch. It says news of this, news that there are Greek-speaking Gentiles coming uh, into the church in Antioch. News reached now the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The first partnership described here, I think, is the partnership of the, the established church, right? The, the church that's been around maybe for a decade or so in Jerusalem, reaching out and beginning to notice what's happening on the frontiers of mission. A few weeks ago, when Brian Hamm was preaching, he, he led us through the first half of this chapter, Acts 11. And in that First half of the chapter, we have Peter who's been out in Samaria, he's been out in um, Jaffa and near Caesarea, 
and he has been mingling among Gentile households there. And when he comes back to Jerusalem to report on what's happening, he gets kind of an upbraiding. Uh, he, he, he faces this stiff resistance from the leadership in Jerusalem because at least up until that point, their, their background, their sense of what piety looked like meant that Jews and Gentiles didn't intermingle. Those two communities weren't supposed to connect. But in the passage that Brian shared, Peter courageously sort of resists that impulse. And instead he points out, well, well, look at what the Holy Spirit has done. Look at what God himself has initiated. He poured out the Spirit on these Gentile believers without regard for, for things like ethnicity or culture or circumcision. And so if, if God's moving beyond those boundaries, then, then maybe the church is meant to move beyond them as well. And so a, a change of heart begins to, to take root in the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem. And now just a few verses later, here in 19 and following, we get reports about new Gentile believers, not in, in Palestine now, but further out. And as, as these reports come from Antioch and Cyprus, the leaders of Jerusalem have a second chance. Right? Do they continue to resist? Do they continue to ignore what God is doing in mission? Or could they join it? Could they support it somehow? And so they decide to take that step forward. And they look around and they say, let's, let's create a partnership. Let's send someone to be a delegate from our community to Antioch. And as they think about who to send, there is one person in particular that rises to the top of that list. It's a, it's a guy we met back in chapter 4 whose nickname meant the son of encouragement. Right? They decide to send Barnabas. In part because he was from Cyprus, he kind of knew this region already. But I also think that the choice of Barnabas is largely because of his attitude surrounding mission. Barnabas is not, it seems, a leader who needs to be in charge. He's not a leader who needs to tell people what to do. Barnabas' gift is to come alongside the mission. Barnabas is a supporter. Barnabas is an encourager, right? That's what his nickname meant. So much so that look at verse 23. He is sent to Antioch. He arrives in that community and the first thing he does when he gets there isn't to, to walk in and tell them all the things they need to know about Jesus. Right? The gospel's already there. People have already been responding. He doesn't make some grand declaration about what the church in Jerusalem has to say. Instead, it says, Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done in that place. And he was made glad. Right? He rejoiced in it. He took the time to notice what God was doing in this new community, to notice how the gospel was being preached, how it was being lived out among this new group of people. And Barnabas allowed himself to get excited about that and to bless it and, and to encourage it and to say, keep doing more of this. Right? We stand with you. We want to encourage this work of God to continue. At JCC, I wonder, how active are we at noticing new communities, different and, and diverse from our own? Right? Do we, like Barnabas, have eyes to, to see what God is doing in a new place, in a community that's not ours? 
Right? How connected are we to people who are on the, the frontiers of mission? Right? Not so that we can tell them what to do or, or co-opt to the mission, but simply so that, like Barnabas, we could be sons or, or daughters of encouragement. Last week, I, I shared our desire as a church to enter into this partnership with Food for the Hungry in the Dominican Republic. And one of the, the things that attracted me to that partnership in particular in our missions committee is that their, their vision of that partnership is, is much like the one described here, right? Where, where more established churches or, or churches in other parts of the world can come and visit, can come and see, can come alongside another community, but not so that we can initiate the change, right? The, the change is already being, being uh, initiated and brought to bear and led by these indigenous communities. The partnership is more about us coming and, and seeing what God is doing, the grace of God at work in that place, and being encouraged by it so that we can in turn encourage it and bless it and say, we, we, we want to learn from this, we want to, to, to stand with this, we want to support this in any way we can. But also we, we want to grow with you. We want to see the, the kingdom of God flourish in all its complexity and diversity. So I think that is one area of partnership that, that our church is looking at pursuing. But I think there are probably lots of ways that same kind of partnership could start closer to home. Right here in, in Chittenden County. Right, what about developing or entering into encouraging partnerships with the, the growing Congolese or Nepalese or Bhutanese churches in, in Essex and in Burlington that continue to grow? Right, how, how might we show up to notice and to see and to bless and be encouraged by what God is doing in the kingdom there? Or how could we continue to show up in places like the, the, the prison ministry, the church at prison, where, where God's mission is expanding and, and working in a community very different from our own? How can we see what God is doing, notice the grace of God at work, so that we might be encouraged and that we might also continue to encourage that mission. And I might ask, what if you are one of our links to one of these communities, one of these partnerships? What if God has connected you in particular ways to help JCC be connected more deeply in our community? So we have this, this first description of a partnership between Jerusalem and Antioch. But after Barnabas arrives in Antioch, he sees how special what God is doing there. And he realizes there may need to be further encouragement. There, need, there may need to be further support in that place. And so Barnabas now initiates a partnership of his own. I think Barnabas starts to think, I wonder what it would, would look like for someone who's thought more carefully, more clearly about a gospel among the Gentiles. What if, what if we could bring someone in like that to begin to teach and, and build up this ministry in Antioch? And Barnabas remembers his friend Saul, who he encountered in Jerusalem a decade ago. They, they connected while Saul was in Jerusalem. And then Saul sort of went off the radar, so to speak. He went back to Tarsus, and for, for 10 years, we haven't heard anything about him. But now Barnabas goes to find him. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So between Acts 9, when Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, and this passage in verse 11 again, probably about 10 years has taken place, has gone by. And what what happened with Saul in that decade Nobody really knows. It's sort of the lost decade of his life. Some scholars speculate he may have gone back to Tarsus to a wife or a family from whom he may have been ostracized because of his new faith in Jesus. It doesn't seem that there was a sizable uh, community of of Jesus in that place. And it's almost certain that that Saul's life as an evangelist or as a, a church planter hadn't yet begun during those 10 years. You know, we could, we could imagine maybe something was holding him back. He may have been deeply discouraged in that season. Until a person like Barnabas, right, a person of encouragement, comes to find him. And Barnabas shows up in Tarsus, right, he sails across the water there, and he says, Saul, we need you. Saul, you need to come and see what the Holy Spirit is doing among the people of Antioch. Imagine, though, if that hadn't happened. Imagine if Barnabas hadn't taken that initiative. Right? We might not have half of the New Testament today. Right? Try to imagine, we, we don't know what global Christianity would even look like. Except that Barnabas says, I, I'll go, I'll find Saul, and I'll invite him into this partnership. And in verse 26, we see the the fruit of that partnership. As they go back to Antioch together, they begin to teach alongside one another. They begin to to walk alongside that emerging community in Antioch. It says that great crowds of people respond to the gospel. And in fact, the church in Antioch grows so significantly. Antioch's not a small city. It's probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this point. But they grow so significantly that the people of Antioch have to figure out what to call this group of people. Right? They're encountering them in, in society. And they say, well, they're not just ethnically Jews. Right? This is a mixed community. There are also Gentiles present. And so they, they defy sort of ethnic description. And instead, they give them a new name. They call them Christians. People belonging to the Christ. Right? People belonging to the Messiah. And that the name given to that new community is is the name we still carry today as as God's people. But it's it's due to this partnership between Barnabas and Saul. It's it's in large measure their their willingness to go and, and walk alongside. At various times in my life, I've been really fortunate to have sort of tag team partners in ministry. I've had amazing people to get to do that with. And I far prefer as as a person to do ministry in partnership than to do it by myself. I'm imagining that many of you are the same way. These past four months, it's been really encouraging to get to tag tag team with Pete and get to see what his gifts look like and, and get to see him working and contributing to our community at JCC. But I wonder, who, who are you tag-teaming with? Right? Who has God put in your life to, to partner with in ministry and in mission and in life? Or maybe a better question is, who could you be tag-teaming with? 
Where, where might you have a desire to, to get to know how to work alongside someone else even better? To, to take the initiative like Barnabas and say, hey, let's go see what God is doing here or, or among these relationships. As we move into the fall months, uh, our church is continuing to look at lots of different ways to, to continue worshiping. And we may have uh, people in the sanctuary. We may be looking at Sunday school. That model's still up in the air. There, there are lots of things we're still looking at and deciding about. But one of the things I'd love to continue to encourage you to think about is how you might form these tag teams, these clusters, these partnerships in, in your homes with Maybe just a few people or families. We spent all spring with Phil Corvu. He helped us think about what, what a missional church group or community looks like. How we open up space to be engaged with each other and with our, our neighbors. But whatever that looks like, I know that, that isolation over a month or two is, is difficult. But for that isolation to continue over months and months is, is really you know, stifling to our sense of community and mission. And so I'd, I'd just like to invite you to pray. Who, who are you connecting with? What is your community? Who, what, does that, what does that look like in this season? And how might you be sustained in mission together? How might be you, you be mobilized and renewed in mission by, by choosing to partner with some teammates at this point in time? So we've got two kinds of partnerships described so far. We have Jerusalem initiating a partnership with Antioch. We have Barnabas then initiating his own partnership with Saul to continue that work. And then in verse 27, I love the the picture here, the process of that partnership now comes full circle as Antioch chooses to support Jerusalem. Look at verses 27 through 30. During this time... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so with the conclusion of chapter 11, 11 there's this, this reciprocal nature, that this idea that the mission and the partnership of, of God's churches in mission right, comes, comes full circle, comes back on itself. So often when we think about partnerships, we, we would lay them out as hierarchies or, or we would establish relationships of a kind of dependency. But I think the Holy Spirit is so much more dynamic in the way that, that it moves through the church. And in this case, right, a partnership that starts out with the established church in Jerusalem blessing and, and sending Barnabas to go up to Antioch is, is now blessed back by that community. Right? The upstart church now shows its support for the established church. If you read the, the historians of this period, you, you learn from Josephus and others that there was a failure of the grain harvest in the Roman world uh, around 46 AD. And it was triggered by the harvest in Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And there was a, a very poor harvest in, in 45 or 46 AD. And because of the, the lack of grain supply, then the price of grain went through the roof. 
And that meant that for most of the lower classes in, in the Roman world, they couldn't afford to buy enough to eat, and they began to starve. Jerusalem was one of those less financially or economically prosperous communities. But in Antioch, again, this was a leading city, a wealthier city in the Roman world. These new brothers and sisters who have come into the church are given a prophetic word from Jerusalem. They're given the chance to prepare their hearts and anticipate this time of difficulty. And so they make the choice then to collect a gift. It says they they take as much as they were able to give and they send it back, right, to the elders through Barnabas and Saul. Send it back to Judea. And it's it's that gift that enables the the church in Jerusalem to, to be sustained for those years. In later centuries, actually, the the Christian church in many of the the cities in which it took root implemented or imitated this practice, and they would often fast one or two days a week, and they would set aside the resources that enabled them to save, and they would either feed the poor in their cities, or they would send those resources to other church communities that were struggling. I think it's it's a really vivid image of what we now call the body of Jesus Christ, right? That each part serves the needs of the other. Right? Whether that's a new part of the church or an old established part of the church, whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's the hungry or the well-fed member, right? we're all interconnected. We're all networked in this, this partnership of the kingdom. But I imagine that for the believers in Jerusalem, right, the elders back in Jerusalem, to receive help now, required uh, an immense amount of humility, right? They were used to being the ones making decisions, the ones sending out leaders to help. But now they have to, to, to consider what it means to both give in a partnership, but also to receive through partnership. My guess is that for us at JCC, for most of us as people, we have a harder time with that end of partnership. We're more eager to to give of what we have or or to offer our input or our advice. But I think, especially as as a more established, as a historic, rooted, traditional church community here at JCC, we have to take seriously what it means in this time for us to receive from the the frontiers of mission, from from the places where God is is calling up new leaders, new voices, new resources that, that maybe we haven't traditionally recognized or heard as clearly. Part of that might look like inviting youth in our communities to help us lead and understand what mission looks like. Maybe that means hearing female voices more clearly within the worshiping body of Jesus Christ. Maybe it it means inviting and listening to voices from the global south where the church is is emerging in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. Helping them shape the way, helping them let us shape the way we read scripture or think about mission and partnership. I think we we need to be prepared for all the ways God is renewing and and reshaping his church and be prepared to receive from those partnerships. This morning, as we think about what it means for us to be partners in mission, we have the chance to come to the table of Jesus Christ, which I think is a is a clear picture of that participation in partnership. I want to read to you, again, from 1 Corinthians. And there, 
Saul, who becomes Paul, who is part of this great partnership and, and missional move of God's Spirit. He's writing to one of these churches in Corinth. And he reminds the believers there that as they come to the table of the Lord, right, to take that, that act, that invitation, with the reverence it deserves. And then at the end of, of 10, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving, right, the cup of Jesus at the, the table of the Lord, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. As we come and receive these gifts, we are reminded that anyone in our community, anyone out there that receives and, and enters into these elements, right, is part of, we participate in the same, the living body of Jesus, and we need one another. So I pray that as we come to the table today, we might be mindful of how God might be shaping us and calling us to depend more fully on other members of the body. These are the gifts of God for you, his people.